0: Hello, We the People listeners. It's time for another edition of Ask Jeff. And has there ever been a better time? Send me your questions about the Constitution, and I'll do my best to answer them in a future episode. Go to bit.ly forward slash askjeffpodcast to submit your questions. That's bit.ly forward slash askjeffpodcast. You can also tweet them using the hashtag askjeffncc. Submissions close on February 19th. Thanks so much for sending your questions. It's an amazing time to educate ourselves about the Constitution, and I look forward to hearing from you. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. This week, we explore how the Constitution organizes presidential succession. Spurred by the assassination of President John F. Kennedy and the illnesses faced by President Dwight Eisenhower, the 25th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified on February 10, 1967. Happy 50th birthday, 25th Amendment. The 25th Amendment deals primarily with cases of presidential incapacitation, and we'll have more on that later. But it's not the only law that governs our succession procedures. Article 2 and the 20th Amendment also provide guidance in addition to the third and current Presidential Succession Acts uh, passed in 1947. So how does succession work? And what, if anything, could be changed to make it better? Joining me to discuss it are two of America's leading constitutional and political experts, th- America's leading teachers of the Constitution, a veritable constitutional dream team. So grateful that they've taken time during this busy constitutional moment to join us. Akil Reed Amar is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, America's teacher of the Constitution, my first teacher of the Constitution. So honored every time this great constitutionalist and friend of the National Constitution Center, joins us. Uh, and his most recent book is The Constitution Today, Timeless Lessons for the Issues of Our Era. Norman Ornstein is resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, the author of many superb books on the executive and legislative branches, including The Broken Branch, The uh, a a dean of commentators and perhaps America's leading scholar of presidential succession. Akhil, Norm, thank you so much for joining.
1: Oh, our pleasure. Thank you.
0: Okay, let's jump right in. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, our uh, explainer on the interactive Constitution on the 25th Amendment is not yet up. It's being edited as we speak. And it's kind of long, but I need we need to have some of the text. So I'm just going to read the um, uh, section three and then ask our scholars to tell us about it. Uh, Section 3 of the 25th Amendment, ratified on February 10th, 1967, says, Whenever the president transmits to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he's unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president and acting president. And then Section 4 is quite long. I think rather than reading it, Norm, let me ask you to paraphrase what happens whenever the vice president and a majority of the principal officers of the executive departments or such other body as Congress may provide. Tell the president of the Senate. That the president's unable to discharge his powers. Basically, the vice president becomes president Then the president can say he's fine. But then the secret committee can say that he isn't. And the vice president becomes president. What was uh, the what were the drafters of the amendment trying to achieve there? And could that provision be applied uh,
1: today? So what they were trying to achieve there uh, was, uh, in many ways, a balance, uh, Jeff. Uh, They needed to get the votes uh, and move it fairly quickly to get an amendment through. And they knew that they couldn't cover absolutely everything, but they wanted to cover, in this case, in Section 4, the most difficult cases, uh, and a, particularly a case where a president can't or won't uh, uh, declare his inability, or insists that he's now able to go back, but there is a broader belief that he can't. Now, uh, to keep that from being a coup, uh, you had uh, the vice president working with a majority of the cabinet, uh, and. With an involvement by Congress, and in effect, uh, to keep the President who says he's ready to go back from going back, you need two thirds of both houses of Congress as well. Uh, now, you know we can look at uh, a lot at the history of this, not just the words themselves. And the person I put the most reliance on uh, on that front is John Fierich, uh... who's a professor at Fordham Law School, who had more to do uh, with moving this amendment uh, into the Senate and moving it along with Of course, the uh, prime figure in the Senate being uh, Birch Bayh of uh, Indiana, and all of this uh, because of the shock caused by the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, Keel and I were both at a conference on presidential succession that John Feer put together a few years ago, and he wrote a piece on this, and let me just quote a little bit from it uh, to answer that question that so many people are asking now about uh, removing Trump. What he wrote was, The terms unable uh, to serve or inability are undefined in either Section 3 or Section 4 of the amendment, not as the result of an oversight, but rather a judgment that a rigid constitutional definition was undesirable, since cases of inability could take various forms not neatly fitting into such a definition. And then, you know, this is years ago, long before we ever had the possibility of a Donald Trump. He says... The debates of 1964 and 1965 made clear that unpopularity, incompetence, impeachable conduct, poor judgment, and laziness do not constitute an inability within the meaning of the amendment. So what John Theoric basically says is that all of those things, uh, which a weekend many would attribute to Donald Trump, are not grounds for applying that section of the 25th Amendment. And I would just add uh, one element, which is, since we have the safeguard built into this that you'd need to have two-thirds of Congress agree, uh, it makes more sense in any event if uh, we're talking about impeachable conduct or a clear and present danger to the country that that be done through the regular, uh, if not normal, uh, impeachment process.
0: Thank you very much for that, Norm Akhil, We're parsing Section Four of the Twenty-Fifth Amendment, and the language is when the uh, secret committee transmits that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Do you agree with Norm that that uh, might not include um, the the kind of characteristics he talked about? And what were the framers of the Twenty-Fifth Amendment trying to achieve when they used those words, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office?
2: Well, it's such a great honor to be with my uh, friend and 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 mentor and hero, Norm. I want to second what he said about the the main architects of this amendment who who still walk among us, um, Senator Birch Bayh and the great professor. John so we, we have framers, so to speak, who are still around. That's not true for the framers of the original Constitution or the Bill of Rights uh, or the Reconstruction Amendments, but it is true about the 25th Amendment uh, framers, uh, Senator Birch Bayh and, and uh, his uh, 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 aide and helper in this project, uh, Professor John Fierich. Here's, I think, the key point. This is a slight elaboration of what Norm said. The 25th Amendment doesn't try to specify in great detail what might count as a disability but does try to in effect identify who and how we go about the process. Here's the key point. The Vice President is the pivot in the whole process. Unless the Vice President puts himself, maybe one day herself, forward um, no one else can really, basically, uh, within at least the 25th Amendment framework, proclaim um, an unwilling president disabled. Um, uh, so, the person who's going to have to begin the palace coup process, so to speak, is typically the president's own hand picked running mate and, and successor. Remember, as Norm mentioned, this arises, this amendment, in the way, and Jeff, as you mentioned, in the, the wake of jack kennedy's assassination and america realizes harsh as it is to say that we dodged a bullet kennedy died but think about how and quickly but think about actually how much more dangerous it might have been had um he not died quickly had he become deranged because of this uh, um, attempted assassination in this alternative um, universe hypothetical um, but But one of the um, aspects of his derangement was an inability to recognize and understand his own cognitive disability. These things can happen because of assassination. They can also happen because of natural aging processes, because of dementia and Alzheimer's. And it, it's, I mean, no disrespect to the current president when I remind us all that he is the oldest person to take office for the first time as president of the United States. Um, and, and, and Ronald Reagan, we now know, uh, who was a- at the time, the, the oldest president, now the record's been uh, superseded by Trump and the, uh, of, of, of the first taking office, uh, may very well have been suffering from some features of uh, a dementia um, or senility um, uh, uh, in his term of office. So here are the two keys. The, the, um, uh, because the Constitution doesn't really specify in great detail what counts as disability, here's what it says, because it is a balance. It's trying to avoid the palace coup. The only person who can initiate the process of declaring a president um, unable, if the president doesn't do so himself, is is his hand-picked running mate, typically, the vice president of the United States. Um, And this has to be at least, and if the president contests um, the vice president in in this scenario, basically the cabinet has to weigh in on behalf of the vice president. Um, And once again, these are people that were typically picked by the president himself. Um, so really, it's his own people who are making the determination that he's unfit. And even then, if he disagrees, we um, uh, 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 the, the, um, the vice president and the cabinet don't prevail, then it goes to Congress. And as Norm said, it has to be a two-thirds vote of each house of Congress in order to um, oust um, a president, in order to sign aside with the vice president. And that's even a, a more demanding vote than impeachment requires, which is only a majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate. So great care was taken to avoid palace coup-like situations. The, um, and, and in particular, um, the real point of vulnerability in this whole system is the vice president. Because what happens if he somehow or she one day out of the action or out of the picture the whole machinery pivots on the vice president's willingness to come forward.
0: Great. Well, let's let, let Norman, if I could, um, just to sum it up. So that's helpful. We, we've learned so far that the 25th Amendment provides a mechanism for appointing a vice president if the office is vacant, and it clarifies and provides these procedures for the transfer of power about presidential incapacibility. But as Akhil said, there is... Uh, A major problem with the 25th Amendment, if there were a temporary vacancy in the vice president or if a catastrophic attack created holes in the lines of succession, then the process of transfer would encounter additional difficulties. And then there's a second problem. If there's a catastrophic attack that decimates the cabinet, then there could be no majority of the cabinet to assent to the vice president's declaration that the president has capacitated. You've written so much about this norm. Tell us about how these and other problems with the 25th Amendment could materialize.
1: Uh, Of course. And, you know, there's one other problem that follows directly on what Akhil said. Uh, Some of what they did in the 25th Amendment came out of an American Bar Association report. Uh, But the Congress, uh, I think for political reasons as much as anything, didn't adopt everything that the ABA suggested. And one of the things that they suggested was... Uh, the vice president would be the pivot, but if something happened to incapacitate the vice president as well as the president, the ABA said then the next the person next in the line of succession should occupy that role, working with the cabinet and uh, the Congress and so on. Uh, they took out uh, of that recommendation in the final amendment the person next in the line of succession. So let's go back to the nightmare of the Kennedy assassination and the scenario that akil mentioned. And so just imagine that the president uh, was comatose for a significant period of time uh, and uh, Lyndon Johnson was sworn in and then had a heart attack. Under those circumstances, if we'd had the 25th Amendment, we'd have a vacuum in power and no clear uh, understanding uh, and no mechanism for putting that person in place. So we've still got scenarios out there that are not covered. Now, along with that, we know just going back long before the 25th Amendment and going back to the beginning of the Republic, that we had a provision in the Constitution to uh, have a vice president who uh, could succeed, Uh, and uh, uh, it even mentioned uh, inability. But the Constitution gave Congress the power to create a line of succession after the vice president. And we've had different iterations of this, but as you suggested in your intro, we haven't had one since 1947. We got that one because President Harry Truman, uh, who traveled with uh, the Secretary of State, Stettinius, uh, to Yalta, uh in the aftermath of the second world war back when the secretary of state uh was next in line of succession realized the vulnerability there and came back and proselytized for a new line of succession uh wanted to have uh something that had been there in the uh early days which was members of Congress in the line of succession because he thought that was going to reflect the public more than just having cabinet members. Uh, it had originally been the uh, uh, President pro tem of the Senate before the Speaker of the House, and he pushed to have the Speaker of the House. And that's what we have now, uh, a Succession Act that has uh, the Speaker next in line if the President and Vice President are uh, 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 no longer with us followed by the president pro tem of the senate, followed by the cabinet effectively in uh, uh, order of the creation of the office. After 9-11, I I became increasingly alarmed at the fact that everybody in the line of succession was based in Washington um, and that we could have a set of circumstances, particularly given that uh, we know that United Flight 93 uh, that crashed in the uh, farmlands of Pennsylvania uh... was headed for the capitol dome uh... on a beautiful day when it was quite crowded and the area around it was crowded and you could have wiped out enough of congress that we wouldn't have had a quorum to do any business we might not have had a speaker and the nightmare scenario of nightmare scenarios was uh... some kind of devastating attack at an inaugural which would wipe out the outgoing and in- uh... president vice president the incoming president and vice president uh... the uh... uh... congressional leadership and probably most of the members of congress who were assembled there uh... the uh... members of the incoming cabinet most of whom would not have been uh... in fact all of whom uh, in the previous era would not have been sworn in and every other cabinet member uh... having filed as is protocol uh... A resignation as of noon on the twentieth in which case we might have had some uh rump delegation of Congress that decided not to make it or couldn't make it to the inaugural, declaring that it's the Congress and choosing a speaker to serve, or generals popping up a la Al Haig all over the place uh, saying I'm in charge. And so we pushed very hard through a commission on the continuity of government in the aftermath of nine eleven to reform uh the Presidential Succession Act uh and to clean it up because frankly i believe that it's unconstitutional and unwise to have members of congress who have a vested interest and don't necessarily reflect the judgment of the american people and who they want as president in the line of succession uh... uh i believe uh... that uh, if you look past the first handful of cabinet posts state defense treasury uh... uh attorney general that you're looking at people not chosen because they have the qualifications uh... to be uh... president uh... but to fit other criteria of ideology of region of ethnicity and the like uh... and that there's a better way of doing it uh, having uh, a series of people after the first handful of cabinet members who could be designated officers of the united states confirmed by the senate representing the broader geography and uh, depth of experience, ready just in case we had a catastrophe. You can do that, as the Constitution says, uh, by statute, not by an amendment. But uh, unfortunately, the uh, dribbles of interest by Congress uh, have uh, uh, not even slowed uh, to less than a trickle. They've completely disappeared.
0: Thank you very much for that, Norman. You've uh, well put on the table the question of this third Presidential Secession Act, which, as you said, was passed in 1947. You described how after the vice presidency, the presidency passes to the speaker, the president pro tempore of the Senate, then the heads of the cabinet. There's this bumping procedure where a president or vice president who recovers from disability can bump out a congressional leader. And you expressed concern that some of these procedures were unconstitutional. Uh, Akhil, you too have argued that the current presidential succession statute is unconstitutional because the words of the framers and the text and logic of the Constitution suggest that federal legislators are not officers under the succession clause and ineligible for the line of succession. Tell us more about that argument and why you believe that the current statute raises constitutional difficulties.
2: Uh, So uh, let me build on some of the things that Norm said. I share his concerns. I salute his service on the continuity of government commission and agree that uh, we need a new statute, Um, both for constitutional and policy reasons. um, Americans acted after Jack Kennedy's assassination. We added the 25th Amendment and we haven't similarly um, acted um, post 9-11 to provide a further update. So here's what the 25th Amendment does. Um, In theory, it um, as long as people sort of die off um, um, with um, uh, uh, enough um, uh, um, time in between, um, if you vote for Party X for the presidency, for the for president, you get that party for four years. Okay, you vote let's say, Republican, and let's say something happens to the president, well, then you get the president's running mate, who, under an earlier provision of the 25th Amendment, can now fill the vice presidential vacancy. Um, That's what happens. Um, uh, Richard Nixon's vice president resigns. Nixon picks Ford um, under the 25th Amendment. And then when Nixon resigns, Ford moves up, and then Ford gets to pick someone, Rockefeller. So as long as the deaths and resignations occur sort of in an orderly way, you vote Republican, you get Republican for four years, which is what you should get. That's what the people voted for, Nixon, and if not Nixon, Agnew, and if not Agnew, Ford, and if not Ford, Rockefeller. And the 25th Amendment guarantees party continuity. So you vote Republican for president, you get Republicans. You vote Democrat for president, you should get Democrats. But the way actually the current succession statute reads, if God forbid something takes out the president and the vice president simultaneously, you can get a massive shift of political power. You can get regime change of a very bad and destabilizing sort um, affected by, in effect, a political assassin he, who can make the party that lost the presidency the incumbent presidential party very concretely under the current statute, forget the founders and the word office and all the rest. I'm making an argument now about the deep spirit of the 25th Amendment itself, which is about um, a creating a close working relationship between the president and the vice president and party continuity and the president's cabinet. So now, um, and all of that is is threatened by the presidential succession statute. Um, so just in, in um, recent past, Um, You vote for um, Nixon, and while the vice presidency is vacant for a while, you could have instead, who's a Republican, gotten Carl Albert, who's a Democrat, which is not what you voted for. You vote for um, Ronald Reagan, and and if something, God forbid, had happened to Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, both Republicans, you'd have got Democrat Tip O'Neill. You voted for conservative Republicans, and you end up with a liberal Democrat. Um, you vote for, um, uh, Clinton and Gore and you end up, um, uh, moderate Democrats with Newt Gingrich, who's the speaker of the house for part of their time in office. Um, you, you vote for, um, uh, W. Bush and, um, George W. Bush and, and Cheney, and you end up with Nancy Pelosi, you know, uh, you vote for, um, uh, o- Obama, Biden and, um, uh, and y- y- you you end up with Paul Ryan. Um, I'm trying not to be partisan here. I'm trying to say, you know, if you vote for Democrats for the presidency, that's what you should get for four years. If you vote for Republicans for presidency, that's what you should get for four years. And the way to do that is to modify the presidential succession statute to provide an effect for cabinet succession um, president then vice president, then maybe secretary of state, um, secretary of defense, attorney general. And here's Norm's other, um, uh, suggestion, which I share that since maybe people are being picked for secretary of state, even, or, or defense or AG for other reasons. Um, it's, and who, and they may, they may be really superb secretaries of state, but not really the best third person for the presidency. Maybe we could create a different line of succession. Um, in which we create, for example, an office of, let's say, vice-vice president. And it's like the designated hitter in baseball. They only have one basic function. You know, they, they don't have to take the field, but the designated hitter is really good at doing one thing, you know, hitting a baseball. Well, maybe the vice-vice president doesn't have any other main portfolio of, of uh, day-to-day responsibility. His or her job is to be um, in the l- line of succession, but out of the line of fire. Maybe not in Washington, D.C., to get a, pres- a PDB's uh, B- presidential daily briefings to be in the loop. Maybe actually a person would be particularly good at that might be himself or herself one day, a former president um, who act- or former vice president who knows the drill. Because if something simultaneously happens because of terrorism or something else to the top two people, the markets are going to crash by, you know, five thousand points. The the, the Dow, uh, the world, and the nation are going to be reeling. And maybe what you need is someone who knows how to be present. Maybe he or she wouldn't be a great Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State, but someone who can come in at an instant and do the job. Because that and 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 that's not the Speaker of the House or the present pro tem of the Senate who could be a 90-year-old, Strom Thurmond, back in the day. Those are not the people who are going to be able to step in at a moment's notice and reassure the country and the world and do the job.
0: Uh, Thank you very much for that. Um, Norman, so Akil has recommended a vice vice president. You have recommended... Among other reforms, the creation of an interim emergency court of appeals consisting of the chief justice of the various circuit court of appeals in case an attack reduces the Supreme Court below its statutory quorum requirement of six. Um, What are other central reforms you think would be helpful um, is there any chance they might be adapt- adopted? Uh, given given the fact that they haven't been yet, and tell our listeners are these are these sort of catastrophic scenarios involving really unlikely attacks, or is there a distinct possibility that we could face a succession crisis? Uh,
1: there is a possibility, and a real possibility. Uh, we know that uh, we've had. Uh, devastating attacks on the uh, homeland. Uh, we know that there have been others uh, that have been attempted. Um, we know that increasingly uh, weapons of uh, mass destruction are moving towards availability and uh, decreasing in size, the so-called suitcase nuclear bombs and the like. Uh, and even if the possibility is still remote, uh, this is an insurance policy for the constitution uh... so you know going back uh... Um, i started to work on this uh, actually on nine eleven late in the afternoon i had been at dulles airport in the morning and got called back after the second uh, plane hit the world trade center uh... from my flight when they uh... froze uh... the flights and Uh, ended up at home and watched, and as I saw that United 93 uh, crash, uh, uh, all of this went through my mind, and I realized that uh, there's a statutory quorum requirement in Congress of a majority of the members uh, lose it, and at the worst possible time, uh, in the midst of an attack on the homeland and a war possibly, we wouldn't have a Congress. So we started looking at what to do to make sure We had a Congress operating immediately or very, very quickly in the event of a devastating attack. And the main recommendation there was in the event of such an attack that there could be emergency interim appointments to the House and Senate uh, made by – and states could uh, determine it, but as we do now for most states in the Senate by the governor – and in a sense that parallel to the twenty-fifth amendment uh... if uh... we had members who were incapacitated or missing um, that uh, once they could write a declaration indicating they're ready to go back, the emergency appointment uh, appointee would leave, and that otherwise you would have uh, elections which normally take about four months to pull off if you're only doing one for the House of Representatives, somebody who could serve until the body could be back up and running with those who had been elected in the first place. Uh, we moved to make some of these changes in the Presidential Succession Act, and the then uh, realizing that, uh, one, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, uh, barely a football field's length away from the Capitol Dome, uh, and on the morning of 9-11, the Judicial Conference of the United States uh, was meeting there, uh, so not at all out of the question that you could lose some justices in an attack, and that all we have is that statutory requirement of six uh... to uh... uh... enable the court to function and all of these questions of succession and of powers that could emerge in the fog of war that letting it uh, these things be decided by individual courts of appeals or uh uh you know have uh disputes out there made no sense, and that the easiest way to deal with this was to create an emergency interim court uh until it could be reconstituted uh and I, you know one thing I would add uh, to all of this, Jeff is Looking at the broad arc of the history of the country and going back to the succession problem uh, at the start, the need to make an adjustment uh, after the election of 1800, the 12th Amendment that made uh, a further adjustment, the 20th Amendment, the few times that we've had the changes in the Presidential Succession Act, uh, those things didn't come very easily. It took a crisis, or in some cases, uh, as with the uh, uh, revision of the uh, Presidential Succession Act before the Truman one, uh... after a couple of presidential assassinations with no vice president for a long period of time and back when congress often wasn't constituted where you had times when there really was nobody in the line of succession uh... dodging one bullet through history often hasn't been enough to motivate congress to act either to do a constitutional amendment or even a statutory change. And it took the shock of the Kennedy assassination to bring about the 25th Amendment. And 9-11 was not a big enough shock uh, to bring about some of these adjustments that we've been talking about. And I should add, Akeel has been a stalwart in uh, using his uh, enormous authority to try and help move these things. But even Akeel. Couldn't
0: do it. Well, if Akeel can't do it um, when it comes to the Constitution, it can't be done. But I do want kill to do something he can do so well, which is to really take us back to the beginning and give us the, uh, the Cook's tour of succession evolution from the original Constitution's provisions in Article Two, Section One, which say, in the case of removal of the President from office or his death or resignation, the same shall devolve on the Vice President, and Congress may by law provide for the case of removal death, resignation, or inability of the president or vice president, um, to the first presidential succession act, which involved a debate about whether officer of the United States included or forbade members of Congress from being included and ended up including members of Congress, up to the second presidential succession act of 86, and then the 20th Amendment of 33. Akhil, I know that's a lot, but if anyone can do it, you can. Can you give us the five-minute version of that evolution in history?
2: Uh, I'll do my best. Um, So... Um, here's one essential thing to understand about, um, the presidency. It's a continuous office. Um, uh, it's, uh, sleepless. There's, there can never in legal contemplation be a nanosecond in which America does not have a president. Um, this goes back, in some ways, to English tradition. Um, the famous phrase, "The king is dead, long live the king." The nanosecond that one uh, uh, king dies, you know, the, the successor. Um, uh, uh, emerges the the oath the coronation oath might be weeks away months away but but um, there is a new king um, at at that moment the oath by the way doesn't make someone president it's just the first thing you do once you are president there always has to be a president and uh, the Constitution provides for this um, see Congresses go in and out of session and some people think you know we're better off when Congress is out of session. Um, and and courts go in and out of session but there's always one and only one president and so the Constitution provides for an understudy, a next in line a vice president in a way that it doesn't specify it could have and maybe we, by statute could create vice senators, vice representatives, vice judges, vice justices but we don't do that. we just have the idea of the vice president um, uh, as our as our backup um, and originally you see, the vice president, I mean, we needed a backup, um, but the relationship between the vice president and the president was a somewhat um, awkward one because the vice president was the person who came in second for the presidency and wasn't really the president's running mate or inner circle. Arguably, the vice president was the, the, the main rival, in a way, of the president, the only person who really, uh, the person who got closest to being president without winning, and maybe in the next election, who uh, uh, might actually get more votes, uh, were there, um, uh, the, a fickle electorate to, to change its preferences. So originally, you see, George Washington doesn't run on a ticket with John Adams. Um, Adams just comes in second. Um, that's going to be important to the story, that, um, because that's going to get changed. Um, And and our system today, thanks to an amendment called the 12th Amendment, is one in which uh, um, uh, presidents and vice presidents run as a ticket. Um, And so they're already partners, in in, in a way, um, uh, rather than rivals. And that's the regime that the 25th Amendment, after John Kennedy's assassination, is going to try to um, further refine, creating teamwork between president and vice president so they can pass power back and forth. A president is encouraged to basically step down temporarily if there's some scheduled surgery, hand off power to his hand-picked running mate and wingman, and then when he recovers from the surgery, take it back, back and forth. A team uh, process that begins with the 12th Amendment and is refined by the 25th Amendment. But you're asking me about a slightly different Uh, piece of the puzzle, which is what happens if both the president and the vice president are out of commission? Because again, to repeat, um, beginning with the 12th Amendment and then the 25th Amendment The president and the vice president are supposed to be a team. One of the reasons that Pence is given such power to to basically pull the plug with the cabinet's approval on on Trump, at least temporarily, is Trump picked Pence. They are teammates together, and, and that is a 25th Amendment idea building on a 12th Amendment idea. But now what happens if, for some reason, both the president and the vice president are out of commission. The Constitution, because executive power has to be seamless, there always has to be someone at the helm at every point, someone has to be um, ca- um, uh, 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 captaining the ship, they provided for a backup. Congress, under under the Constitution, was allowed to designate the number three after the president and the vice president. Um, now, who should that number three be? Well, early on, um, um, uh, George Washington has two really big, um, personality cabinet, um, officers leading his cabinet. Um, and one is Thomas Jefferson, the secretary of state, and he thinks he's obviously, you know, he, he should be number three and, um, and he's, um, a, 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 a leader of a certain faction, let's call them the democratic republicans. And there's Alexander Hamilton and he's a leader of a slightly different faction. He's secretary of state and he thinks he's, um, the big cheese. Um, so the two men uh, sort of e- are rivals and each wants to basically have his cabinet position be designated the, um, uh, uh to, t- t- uh, t- third in charge in the event that something happens to the president and the vice president. They want to be ex officio, but the next person and Congress, um, their, friends in Congress say, if you all can't decide, you know, which, uh, of you, uh, deserves top billing we'll pick our own leaders to, to, to be uh, next in charge, the president pro tem of the Senate and uh, the Speaker of the House, which is what the, the uh, First Presidential Succession Act does. And James Madison said, that's a mistake. That's unconstitutional. It's supposed to be really, in effect, a cabinet officer and not a legislator. Um, but but n- now you know why they did it, because they couldn't decide, in effect, between Hamilton and Jefferson. Now, here's one problem that that presidential succession act of 1792 is going to create and they weren't thinking about it in 1792 but here's a problem that it creates what about in an impeachment scenario let's imagine in particular a presidential impeachment scenario when the vice presidency is vacant let's imagine a president has died or resigned the vice president has now become president Before the 25th Amendment, there's no way of filling that vice presidential vacancy. As Norm mentioned, before the 25th Amendment, there were many occasions on which the vice presidency was vacant either because the vice president president had died or resigned or had moved up to become president. For about 40 years in American history, there was an empty vice presidency. Well, um, what happens if there's a president who's impeached and the vice presidency is vacant? This isn't a wild hypothetical. This happens in the 1860s. Lincoln is assassinated, Andrew Johnson becomes president, the vice presidency is vacant, and now there's an impeachment of Johnson. And who's heading up the impeachment? Well, in part, who presides over it? The Senate of the United States. Um, Who's the formal leader of the Senate? They're the the triers, the judge and jury. Um, Who's the leader of the Senate? That's the president pro tem, pro tempore of the Senate, and he's next in line for the presidency. Um, and this looks kind of smarmy, but if he, um, his name at the time is Benjamin Franklin Wade, Ben Wade of Ohio. And if he can get senators by a two thirds vote to vote against Andy Johnson, he'll be president. And he's already kind of got his cabinet picked out and ordinary people look at this and they say, this looks stinky. Um, and eventually the constitution is, let me see the, uh, presidential succession statute is amended, um, uh, at, uh in the 1880s. To provide for cabinet succession and basically take the, uh, the legislators, the, the Speaker of the House and the President a Pro Tem of the Senate, out of the loop and, and restore cabinet um, officers, uh, put them at, at, the, at the top of the line of succession, which is what Madison said was the right idea in the first place. Eventually, Harry Truman comes along. And he says, here's a problem with cabinet officers. They're not really elected. Um, and I, Harry Truman, think the president, uh, that anyone who's going to take charge of the country should have some kind of electoral mandate. And so in 1947, um, they changed the statute back, in my view, and in Norm's view, in an unwise and unconstitutional manner, and put um, uh, congressional leaders back at the top of the line of succession, this time with the Speaker of the House being at the top and the present pro tem of the Senate being um, uh, next and after that a whole bunch of cabinet officers beginning with the Secretary of State and that's what we have today but both Norm and I think it raises some real constitution and many others I think it raises some real constitutional problems and also some real practical problems. It's just not very wise because it doesn't maximize real continuity of policy when, for example, you vote for one party and then there's an, uh, maybe a violent assassination attempt that succeeds, regime change, and we end up with the other party controlling the White House, which is not the way to go. Beautiful.
0: If anyone could do it, I knew you could, and now I understand the debate about how uh, Madison thought that— Uh, only um, why leaders of Congress should not be considered officers of the United States, why the Presidential Succession Act of 86 uh, embraced his arguments, and why Truman changed it back, because he thought that the president should be nationally elected. All right, this has been incredibly illuminating, and I think it is time to sum up, uh, time for closing arguments. So Norm... Uh, why is the 25th Amendment problematic uh, from a constitutional and practical perspective, and how should it be amended to fix those problems?
1: So let, let me uh, start the sum up, uh, Jeff, by uh, giving a real shout out to Birch Bayh, John Furick, and the others who stepped up to the plate to do this and uh, did, uh, under the circumstances, and given the the political dynamics and difficulty of making something like this happen, um, uh, just a a wonderful job, all things considered. Uh, They had to make some judgments, and those judgments uh, left a lot of holes. We still have situations where um you could have a president and vice president incapacitated now and a vacuum and an inability to choose a successor at the same time i wish that what we had seen with the 25th amendment was an understanding and recognition by uh the leaders in congress that uh, this was a chance to maybe make some adjustments in the whole nature of presidential succession beyond what happens when you have different kinds of disability that were not defined uh, originally in the Constitution or by the other uh, iterations and amendments, uh, and uh, that were uh, either unconstitutional or not up to date. Uh, Maybe they could have done this by having a statute accompanying uh, the uh, 25th Amendment. I think if they had put a provision in the 25th Amendment that uh, recognizing that there might be other circumstances uh, that they either did not want to specify at the time or didn't have the votes to do, um, that those things could be done by statute in the same way that the Constitution originally allowed uh, a line of succession to be created by Congress. Uh, But there were other places where we might have uh... been clearer on how to handle this and now of course we also have this uh... sense that so many people are developing just reading the plain language of the amendment that this is a vehicle to remove a president who you think is reckless or unstable uh... or uh... uh stupid or many other things um, and having uh, no sense of what the background uh, of this is or what the hurdles are otherwise Uh, I don't know if uh, if it would have made sense to make that clearer in the uh, language itself, uh, but I wish we'd had a little bit more clarity in the record at the time uh, so we wouldn't be getting some of this uh, speculation now that's probably just a little bit off-kilter.
0: Thank you so much for that, uh, Norm. Uh, Akhil, what are the constitutional and practical difficulties uh, raised by our current succession laws and what could be done to fix them?
2: So I agree with Norm. The 25th Amendment does a pretty good job. I would say it's incomplete in certain ways, and it can be completed by a mere statute. We don't really need to amend the Constitution um, yet again. Um, Here are some of the holes uh, and defects in our current system that could be um, fixed by a statute, ideally a statute agreed to, um, by Republicans and Democrats, and, and not a bipartisan um, framework statute. Um, so uh, first, um, uh, changing the existing presidential succession statute, the 25th Amendment is really about presidential disability, but what happens when both the president and the vice president are um, uh, out of commission, We—that's uh, let's say dead, just to be, you know, where there's no controversy about it, um, no disability um, debate. Um, they're dead, maybe in a horrible terrorist incident. Right now, the Speaker of the House takes over. That's bad because the Speaker of the House for most of uh, the recent presidents sees has been at least, um, for some time occupied by the opposite um, political party, the political party that lost the presidential election. That's not good. We can change that by statute. We can, um, get rid, we can demote the, um, speaker and the, um, president, uh, 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 uh pro tem of the Senate, um, uh, put them way down in the line of succession, um, um, maybe they're better than having the, um, assistant postmaster general take over at, as the 18th in the line, but, but we could, we could restore cabinet succession and put in some new, um, officials who, uh, um, uh, are out of the line of fire, but in the line of succession, especially confirmed basically just to be, as it were, constitutional designated hitters. In addition to that... Okay, so that's fixing the presidential succession statute. Um, In addition to that, we could have in another section of that statute some provisions for how to determine whether the vice president is disabled in some way, mentally or physically. Um, And presumably the next person in the statutory line of succession could be the pivot or the trigger in that process. In addition to that... Uh, the 25th Amendment itself says the cabinet can be a body that makes certain decisions, um, but Congress can also s- create an, other bodies to make certain determinations of disability. Maybe Congress could pass a statute creating a medical commission that would be called into action if there were ever really a serious issue about uh, the, the mental capacities, the cognitive capacities of of an arguably disabled president, so that it doesn't look quite so political, maybe, um, and that again, um, the 25th Amendment doesn't um, require that, but it permits that, and it doesn't need an amendment for that. Statutes can do all that. I close with one final point. If you read the original Constitution really, really strictly, It says there's a president, it says there's a vice president, and Congress, by law, can say who's president, if both the president and the vice, who's president, if both the president and the vice president are out of commission. What did the early Congress did? It didn't create just one backup, it created two. I think it created the wrong ones, President Pro Tem and Speaker of the House, but it created a whole, a short, but a line of succession, because there always really has to be a president. Um, and, and even though the constitution, strictly speaking, could have been read to say, Oh, Congress can only name one person. They began to create a line. Norm and I both believe that we've got to lengthen the line because unfortunately terrorism creates more possibilities and permutations of, 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 of multiple people being taken out of action, dead or disabled simultaneously. Um, and, and Congress by mere statute, I think has very broad authority. Uh, both its original constitutional powers and later ones um, uh, by later amendments to to complete the project begun by the framers, revised by the 12th Amendment and the 25th Amendment, um, but still not fully complete.
0: Thank you so much, Akhil Amar and Norm Ornstein, for educating and illuminating our listeners about our complicated presidential succession laws and how to fix them. And a very happy birthday to the 25th Amendment. Akhil, Norm, thank you so much for joining.
1: You bet. Thank you.
0: Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Dan Meyer and Lana Ulrich. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using constitutionctr. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate, which now is more important than ever. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.